0: Welcome to
1: the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is the Atonement. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our guest today, uh, connecting with us via Skype, is Adam Johnson, who's associate professor of theology at Biola, well Talbot Biola, which is a kind of combination, but you're primarily involved with the Tory Honors Program. Adam, tell us about that, so we kind of have a context for what you do.
1: Yeah, so undergrads have their they have the major they focus in as they're thinking about their career, but what makes it a liberal arts university is they're studying a whole bunch of other fields along the way, doing their general education requirements. So typically you have your English 101 and your History 101 classes and all that. We take all those intro classes in your in your general education. We lump them into a great books program. So we have our students reading Homer and Milton and Calvin um, and a whole bunch of Bible along the way rather than reading textbooks. And then we discuss them in three-hour seminars. So we're, we're not worried so much about delivering content or summarizing fields. We're inviting them into a conversation that's been happening over the last three, four thousand years in a way that just brings them into a life that we're leading. Um, it's just a really different approach to, to, their, to their general education.
2: So is all your teaching in this great books program, or do you do any specialized theological teaching as well?
1: So every once in a while, they'll let me out of my cage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so every semester, I teach a, a faith and film seminar. I go teach it with one of the film professors, where we're looking at theological and philosophical questions in film, hmm. and then I'll teach um, theology seminars probably once a year. So I've done, done an atonement seminar. I'm doing one on the doctrine of election this semester, um, so I get to do a little bit of that.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Now, um, I'm, I'm almost tempted to go in the direction and say, all right, what interesting films have you reviewed lately? But I'll, I'll resist the temptation, <laughs> and we'll dive right into our topic. Um, t- tell us how you got fascinated with the topic of the atonement.
1: Yeah. So after college, I knew I wanted to be a professor. Um, my, my experience had been so formative and my, my professors had invested so much time in me um, in terms of uh, my relationships, in terms of uh, different beliefs, books. I, I just spent so much time with them and I was so shaped that I thought if I, if I could do that. That's what I want to do. But I knew I needed to get a PhD, and I didn't have a clue of what I wanted to focus in. Uh, if anything, I was leaning towards studying Plato for, for my doctorate. But I spent a lot of time uh, praying, talking with friends, talking with mentors, reading. And I, I was sitting in my mentor's office. Uh, this was a couple of years after graduating. And we were talking, and, and uh, I, I almost had a—it was, like, was like a conversion experience— um, you know those art installations where you look at them and it's a big pile of junk, and then the camera will pan around, and all of a sudden it all comes into focus, and it's a, it's an it's an image mm-hmm. like a man smoking a pipe or a, a dog, you know, sitting, you know, <clears throat> so what looks like trash all of a sudden takes form. Um, pretty much that's what happened to my life, and as I sat there, I realized that all along I'd been interested in the doctrine of the atonement, and I just couldn't couldn't see it before. Um, the movies I'd been interested in, the, the first book I reread after college was Anselm, uh, Why God Became Man, um, the conversations that I'd had. And uh, so that was sort of a, a realization that happened, and uh, ever since I've been working on the doctrine. I've, I've just been completely in love with it.
2: Okay. So you decided to take on the atonement uh, at, at, for a dissertation topic. It's become a book. Uh, tell us the title and kind of overview the book for us, if you would.
1: Yeah, so so the book is um, Atonement: A Guide for the Perplexed. It's in T. D. Clark's series of, of guides, and so what this book is is an attempt to make make popular or accessible my dissertation, my dissertation focused on Karl Bart, but you know not 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 too many folks are going to read that or find that to be really accessible. Um, but it's not—it's not just a, an attempt to make it popular. Really, what I'm doing is going back and showing people how I got to my dissertation. Because Bart wasn't the one that took me there. Um, so after I had my um, this, this uh, conversion experience, we'll call it. Um, I went from there and just started reading in the history of doctrine. That, that's how I'd been trained to do. I, I didn't really go read a bunch of contemporary books. I started reading you know, Athanasius, Anselm, Aquinas, Edwards, um, Irenaeus. I wanted to see what those guys thought when they when they were asking what happened on the cross. And um, when I came to to my my conclusion, then I realized that Bart was the best guy to help me unpack this project. Hmm. So in some ways, the, this book really isn't. Um, a popularization. It's more like the prequel.
2: Yeah.
1: And I'm bringing in all those other voices to, to provide a much more compelling narrative. And uh, so basically when people think about the atonement, they try to they try to boil it down to one main thing more often than not. They try to find one like, it, it's a little bit like like um, when, when people might want to explain what's the best thing about their home state, You know, maybe they want to boil it down to one thing and say, Oh, you know, Washington State is the best because of... And they'll say something. Problem is, um, and and, and most of us come from states that are so rich in culture and history and natural beauty and folklore that there's just so much more to say than one thing. And folks prior to 1800, when they talk about the cross... They don't say, they don't try to boil it down to one main thing. They just try to, they're like poets trying to unpack how beautiful an event this is and how much is going on. So my dissertation and then this book was really a matter of asking, why is there so much going on on the cross? Uh, Why is the biblical language so rich and varied? Why is the, the history of theology so rich and varied when it comes to explaining this? And that's what I was asking.
2: Okay, so... Um, we'll go in the reverse direction, and I'll pick up the cue. Most people, when they think of atonement, I think if if they if you were to ask them to put one other word in that space, they yeah. might just say substitution yes. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that a is that a decent starting place? But I take it it's not the only place to land.
1: Yeah. So pretty much. So so my approach is I'm not too concerned about where you start. Now, of course, no, now that that could be misused quickly, right? Yeah. Um, so, if you want to start with substitution, I'll run with you and say, "Great, that's a wonderful place to start." But then, what I'll what I'll want to do is be attentive. Is that where you want to stop, mm-hmm. um, or 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 why do you want to start there? So it, it'll be a little bit like saying if you were telling me about about your wife, um, if, if you're married, and 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 you might say, "Oh, my, my wife's beautiful," which is that's that's fantastic. <laughs> Are, are, are you married, Daryl? Yeah, I am. Okay, okay. So, so I, I hope I, I hope you 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 would say that, but then as I got to know you, if that's all you could say about your wife, I'd start to be a little bit worried,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because hopefully she's beautiful, but she's much more than that. Mm-hmm. So, like with substitution, is Jesus Christ our substitute? Well, obviously, all throughout Paul, he's talking about Christ being our substitute, and there's something that happens on the cross that happens so that it doesn't have to happen to you and to me. <clears throat> But then, is that all we can say? Uh, because Paul will also say things like I died in Christ, or I was raised in Christ, and that's, that's a very different category of thought than substitution. It's much more along the lines of representation where if this event didn't happen so that it wouldn't happen to me. It happened to me in Christ, so that that really happened to me in some way. <clears throat> so, um, substitution, absolutely. But Scripture is much more Diverse. It includes a a number of other ways of thinking about it that I would want to be able to tie in.
2: Okay, so um, so let's let's go through some elements of the list here. We we put substitution out on the table. I'm taking this this in Christ thing. I'm going to try and boil it down to a single word. If I've oversimplified it, let me know. Uh, You said representation, participation might be another word that we could put with that, perhaps. Uh-huh. um uh okay so that's two categories so how deep does this list go
1: okay that that's fine. um well so there are a couple ways of thinking about this um th- th- this 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 is a as in in my experience so far this has been a shorter list but then there's a different list that's a little bit longer mm-hmm. so the other major cat one other major category i'd want to add to this is is revelation mm-hmm so, um, all throughout the Gospel of John, um, you, ha- you have something is happening in Christ which, in which he is a substitute, in which he does represent us, but also there's this, this light that is cast from Christ, which puts all, all else either in light or in shadow, and which is the objective standard for us to, to know God, to know Christ, to know God's ways, to know ourselves. So, there's a powerful element of, of, of revelation going on there as well. Um, Now, I mentioned a second list. Um, The the first list that we've been talking about is asking, how are we connected to the person of Christ?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Like, is he just another man? No. (laughs) Um, um, But as a man, he he does something that happens so that it won't have to happen to us. But there isn't that much distance because what's happening to us or what's happening to him is pulling us into that event. And yet, in that, he, he's opening up and revealing things in a way that is, is objective and, tr- and, and truth-bearing. He, he's, he's casting a light to, so that we can see clearly for the first time. Um, that, that's a very elemental, foundational um, list. It is trying to explore how are we connected to this, to this man. There's another list that people like to talk about, and that has to do with different theories of the atonement. Yes. <clears throat> so, um, lots of folks have heard that Jesus is, um, one, one major theory is that Jesus defeats Satan, um, that's Christus Victor, um, that Jesus is in some way the one who provides satisfaction or is the penal substitute. That has has to do with Anselm and Calvin, that line of thought, um, and then a third element on this list is that Jesus is the example that, that, the, that his way of life uh, is, is, is a, a way of, of loving and living so inspiring that it catches us up into this way of life. Now, the funny thing is that list goes back to Gustav Allain, who was writing in the 19, uh, 1930s, early 1930s, I think. In his context, all he heard was penal substitution. And so when people wanted to talk about what was Jesus doing? On the cross, or what was God doing on the cross? All people could talk about was penal substitution. And as he was reading around in the history of theology, he realized, "Oh, there's more to this. You know, we don't just have to say our wives are beautiful. We could also say they're really intelligent, or gracious, or they're, they, they, they're, they're amazing hosts." Or you know, he he wanted to add to this list, so he did. Problem was, he 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 made the list um, small and stunted. And uh, as as you read back through the history uh, of the church's reflection on this, and as you read through the Old and New Testaments, you end up finding um, a far greater number of theories of the atonement, we might call them, um, throughout the history of the church. Uh, I, I read one book that puts the number at thirteen. Hmm. Uh, I'm not very interested in putting a number on it. I'm just I just have fun trying to find new ones.
2: Hmm. So let let's let's work through some of these because actually, what strikes me is is that there's a list that has to do particularly with how I'm involved in the transaction of what atonement is about. If I can say it that way, that's your substitution and and representation. But then it sounds like this other list has to do with what's going on more cosmically. What's uh-huh. going on beyond me? What's what's the what's the big deal in the atonement? And and, right. and that big deal extends beyond what's just happening to me as an individual. It's what God is about in the whole of what it is that He's doing. Is that is that a fair way to divide these these two lists that you've given us? Well,
1: that's a that's the, okay. Yes, that is a fair way to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but and and another way of connecting them is to say that substitution. Representation and revelation are fairly um, generic categories, and they're waiting to be unpacked. Mm-hmm. A, little, a little bit like grits. Um, There's the first time I was in Tennessee. I was in a diner, and I saw grits on the menu. I'd read about them, but I didn't know what they were, so I, I didn't know if I wanted lots of them. So I asked the, the waitress if I could have a grit because I didn't know if it was like I didn't know if it was like pancakes, and I was going to get a stack of them. But what if I didn't like them? So she said, "Honey." They don't come all by themselves.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I I don't think I've ever heard anyone ordering a grit before. That's an interest that's that is a fascinating metaphor. Anyway. <laughs> uh,
1: so so substitution is a little bit like ordering grits, but grits often don't come by themselves from what I understand. They'll come with um you know, with bacon or, or, or with, with a sauce or with something. They're a little bit like mashed potatoes that often have something on them. So so a substitute you know, if in, in Dickens, when one of the main characters is going to be um, beheaded, someone comes in, uh, changes clothes with him, uh, and, and then takes his place and, and suffers the, the, the judicial consequences in his place, and that, and that feels a lot like penal substitution. But penal substitution, the, the word penal there is very important. That's one form of penal substitution in which the penalty that I ought to receive is taken by someone else. But there are other kinds of substitution. Uh, so, so for example, you know, let, let's say let's say that we're in a, in a context in which uh, shame is a huge matter. Um, someone could um, could try to restore the honor of someone else. Like, Let's say I shamed someone by accident. A friend of mine could be my substitute and go and try to repair or restore the honor of that person in a public way, in my stead, which is still a form of penal, su- uh, still a form of substitution. It's just not working with penal categories anymore. It's working with the categories of honor and glory and shame. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, that that basic list of substitution, representation, and revelation it's it's so basic that it's waiting to be unpacked in different ways. And uh, penal substitution is one of the ways of unpacking substitution. But there are others. So okay, no-
2: so let's 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 go let's go there. Let's stop for a second and say, most people know what penal substitution is. They know that Christ bore the penalty for for something that I deserve and and bears the consequences of that. And if we were to think about what passages we would connect to that kind of idea, um, what passages might we? allude to you don't need to give a full list but maybe one or two s- sample passages that would be good illustrations that suggest that the atonement is has a penal element to it
1: sure um, so one of the I mean, one of the staples is Romans 3 um, tw- I mean, 25 and 26 right 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 around in there but the fuller passage um, the, old, the New Testament draws fairly heavily on Isaiah 52 and 53 for thinking through this. <clears throat> and then probably the best way, I think, is not going to an individual passage, but going to the overall structure of the, old, uh, of the, of the covenant in the Pentateuch, where the sacrificial system is happening within the covenant. But it, then at the end, in Deuteronomy, when God is saying, um, and when you break this covenant... Then there are a series of threats or punishments of what will happen. Um, penal substitution, as I understand it, is really it's the fulfillment of the judgment of God upon a people that breaks its covenant. So the the, the whole frame of the framework of the Pentateuch, uh, as it's summed up in Deuteronomy, around thirty through thirty-two, if I'm right, but um, right around there, is a great place for thinking about how the Old Testament approaches that topic too.
2: Okay, so um, now you've brought in this other element of honor and shame. Yeah uh, how, how does that one work, and what passages might we or themes might we connect to it?
1: Oh, sure. Okay, so a really so so my students just don't know what to do with this one when I take them to it. Um, Exodus, I think it's right around Exodus thirty two, thirty three. Um, the 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 golden calf incident has just happened. And, and um, God is is angry at the people of Israel, and He tells Moses, "Stand aside! I'm going to destroy this this stubborn and rebellious people, and we're starting over with you." And uh, so, on the one hand, that's just sort of apocalyptic judgment, we're, we're just going to destroy this whole people. But on the other hand, God's still going to be faithful to all his covenants and promises because he's going to be keeping on working with the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That all sounds like it's going to go the route of judgment. And then Moses says, wait, 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 wait. What will the Egyptians think? And, and, it, and it's the most bizarre argument. It, moses it, It's almost like Moses is using a peer pressure argument against God. <clears throat> what are the Egyptians going to think? And uh, you, you would think that God would say, uh, I'm God. I don't care what the Egyptians think. I just, complete, I just judged them in a series of ten plagues and showed my glory among them. Like, what, what do I care about the Egyptians? But God responds to that. God cares about his, his reputation and his name and his glory throughout creation. And so what he does is he then offers a par- gives a partial judgment upon Israel <clears throat> but continues to work with that stubborn and stiff-necked people in order that his reputation in Egypt will, will remain as a God who's powerful and removed his people from slavery. So that, there's a, that, that's just one funny little instance where it seems to be going the route of judgment and penal substitution and instead ends up working with the categories of, of name, glory, honor. and and, and those kinds of uh, of topics, as you start looking for that stuff you end up finding it all over scripture. Not not that it's more important than penal substitution, Um, but if if we trace this back to who God is. Penal substitution relies upon thinking about God as judge, or being one who is just and righteous. Now, is God just and righteous? Absolutely, and, and anyone who wants to hedge on that is really going to have a hard time interpreting whole sections of scripture. <clears throat> but is, is God also one who is, who is honorable, who is worthy of honor, and who's, who, whose name is a glorious name, and ought, that name ought to be recognized and praised and worshipped throughout all creation by angels and ourselves and you know, all creation? Absolutely. So is God more just than he is honorable or glorious? No. What these theories do is they each take one part of who God is and unpack the work of Christ from that perspective in a way that does us a real service. Like it helps us understand how God is just and how he brings about his justice in creation. But then another theory will do the same thing, drawing on another aspect of God's character in a way that will help us get scripture.
2: Okay. So so, yeah,
1: so this is it's helping us get a fuller picture.
2: So, uh, so I'm tossing it back to you. Let's develop this some more. What's going on when we think about Christ um, dealing with themes of honor and shame and advocacy on our behalf?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so right at the beginning in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they want to do is hide, which is a pretty strange thing until you realize, oh, okay, yeah, they, they, they felt the redness in their face and the burning in their ears. They, they were feeling the, the, the shame of knowing that, that God was watching them and they wanted to hide um, because they'd done something shameful. And then, and then one way of reading the Ark of Scripture is, how does God bring himself glory when he's been shamed as, as you know, his, 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 creative, his creation is rebelling against him? But how does He restore us to glory and 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 clothe us again in, in, in white and pure garments? Everything has a you could paint the whole picture in terms of we fell into shame and God restores us into honor, and and to do that well, you need you need plenty of tools you know at your disposal, but but one of the big ones is the resurrection. Um, most people can talk a long time about the atonement and just talk about the cross. And the cross is a big, it's a huge component of what's going on. Uh, and by the way, he was crucified in a public way to, to be shamed. It was primarily a shame strategy in terms of what the crucifixion actually means. <clears throat> but the resurrection, um, Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that if we, if, if Christ hadn't been raised, we'd still be in our sins, we're fools, and we, and we haven't been justified. The resurrection is really the key mechanism here by which everything is reversed, and then we are brought into honor and glory, and we're given His name, we're crowned, with you know, He's all these things happen which restore to us what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So it's it's this beautiful picture of God finding a way to restore something to us and restoring honor and glory to His creation so it can be restored to Him too.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
2: Yeah, I think the resurrection is a very important idea, and we tend to think about it, and I actually talk to my students about this, that most Easter messages you hear is he's alive, so we'll be alive one day, that kind of theme. And, and my point is, no, the resurrection is really about the vindication of Christ in many ways and the claims that he makes. It's God's vote in this dispute in which he has been shamed, if you want to put it on the cross. It was the, the cross was a way of trying to discredit Christ from the people who sent him there. Right. And the resurrection is God's discrediting of the discrediting. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, two negatives make a positive. Um, and. And so God is vindicating Jesus and demonstrating that Jesus is actually who he claims to be. And, of course, the idea coming out of the resurrection, particularly developed in Luke Acts of ascension, is the idea that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He shares the presence and glory and authority of God, which is the product of this vindication. So, so you're, what you're saying to us is is that you can't tell the story of the atonement and the cross without telling the story of what came out of the cross, which is the resurrection and ascension that emerged from it. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, so when I try to communicate this to my students, I'll say, I'll say, look, if, if your goal in life is to get divorced someday, you got to get married first. You just can't get divorced if you haven't gotten married. And of course, that's just a funny uh, funny way of trying to, to make the point. What God wants to share with us is himself in the fullness of life, in, in accordance with the way that he intended all of creation to be. He wants to share that blessing of life with him as he meant creation to be. To do that, he enters our situation from within suffers the full reality and consequence of it but then brings us up into that. So the resurrection life is life life as it was meant to be and life like we've never seen it. Um, like a better way of understanding the doctrine of creation is Jesus' resurrected life than anything that happens in the Garden of Eden. Like this is creation as it was meant to be and one person and all who are in him will someday taste that as well when the new city rejoins the new earth and, and and all things will be as God meant them to be. But the key for that is this: God enters it, makes it His own, and then brings it to where He wanted it.
2: Yes. Now um, there are two ways I could go here, and I think I'm going to g- stop and, and pause and and go one way versus pick- picking up the participation and representation idea that's sure. growing out of where you're going. But let's stop and pause. I sometimes get this question. In fact, I got asked this question. I was lecturing in in Manhattan at King's College on Jesus. And the question I was asked is, isn't the atonement ultimately unjust because God is uh, uh, asking his – putting his son to death, okay? Right. Um, and and so there's something inherently unjust about that. It's like God committing suicide, put it in quotes. This is the way the question was posed to me. <clears throat> and my answer was, well, if the death were the end of the story, you might be able – to raise this as an objection but right. the fact is the death is not the end of the story and the resurrection completes the story and it's actually a very important element in telling the story isn't that part of what what you're saying by extending the cross into the resurrection is that is that what happens with atonement is very much related to the vindication that comes out of it
1: yeah so that that's a very big part of it um, but it would it'd be, it'd be really hard to build a house using only rebar. And you have some rebar in the foundation, um, and so it's a vital part of building a house. But you need a lot of different kinds of materials to build a house. The resurrection is one of the fundamental ones. Um, but another doctrine that you need to have on the table if you're going to play this game is the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So that question relies upon um, the relation between the Father and the Son, basically like I would relate to my firstborn. And um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. I wanted to go to war. I thought that would be glorious. And um, and and the thought of going to war meant um, meant nothing but glory to me. The thought of my own sending my own son off to war, <laughs> I I don't I don't know if I could do it. i go in his place a hundred times, but to send my son for that, I just I wouldn't do it. Um, and so, so this, that question relies on the Father and the Son being two separate persons and personalities, two gods. Mm-hmm. And one sends the other, and if, why wouldn't you send yourself? So to, so to do this well, God has to be one God who lives out His life, these three these three eternal ways, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if we affirm the monotheism that's the basis of this whole doctrine, then it's God telling God... God having God sending God, not God sending another God.
2: So he's sending himself into the battle. God is
1: sending himself into the battle, and it doesn't map on to father-son relationships the way that I could send my son into battle or send myself in his place. So, so a way of thinking about this is, uh, you know, one way is the father sends the son. And that raises this question. Here's a different way of thinking about it. You know, when the son is sent, and the son doesn't actually leave God God isn't somewhere and God sends him so what what another way of picturing what ha, what's happening is God is bringing the human problem into the life of God so instead of sending the son he's just bringing the problem here then God can deal with this problem within his, his own life as father son and Holy Spirit rather than just judging and punishing his creation from a distance so so there's a lot There's a lot going on here with the doctrine of the Trinity, and the more you think about God as three different gods, the bigger this problem gets. The more you think about this as the work of one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God, not three gods, then it's a very, very different sort of conceptual terrain for thinking about that question.
2: So this is a natural question. So the, the picture that people usually use as the analogy for what's going on on the cross is the picture of... Of what uh, Abraham is asked to do with Isaac. Right. Okay. And, and the association that's made there. Uh, is that a, a poor association to make with reference to this event or, or not? Oh, that's a good question.
1: So if I was going to pull that in, and I would want to. I'd want to do it in a really careful way, because um, because we don't want to say Isaac is God, is the father, or sorry, um, no, Abr- Abraham is Isaac. <laughs> Good grief, <laughs> getting all tongue tied. We don't want to say Abraham is the father and Isaac is the son, because then we're on this problem of what kind of a father does this. Um, if we, but if we want to say the experience. The experience of Abraham was the experience of God, and the experience of Isaac was the experience of God. God is experiencing both both of these realities and perhaps the experience of, of his mother as well. Because you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here doing this work. This is one God making this problem his own because he doesn't want someone else to have to deal with it or to have to suffer the full reality of it. Um. So I you know what, basically I want to be really careful about mapping on Abraham and Isaac onto that and just saying, yeah, that's like the father and the son. I'd be doing a lot more hedging than I would affirming.
2: Interesting. I cause I, I, I cause uh you know, many people will see that um particular exchange as an important uh kind of analogy. It's interesting because you're doing this within a Trinitarian um, web, if I can say it that way to make sense out of it my my approach to this has been to say that um, not to separate the persons but to say you've got to know the whole story to understand the nature of the sacrifice yes the sacrifice is not it's not it doesn't lead to a permanent death because there's a vindication on the other end of it right and it is the vindication that actually is 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 as key a part of the story as the sacrifice, and when you ask the question, you're asking the question in such a way that the entire focus is on the sacrifice and not if I can say it this way the epilogue and yeah. the epilogue is actually pretty important to this whole journey
1: yeah no and and um and just to be clear um I absolutely agree with everything you just said mm-hmm. um i'm just so it, it it's um there is an awful lot going on in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we have politics going on, there, there, there's, um, there's, there's, there's history, there's the role of the covenants, we have the sociological, you know, it, it forces implications of different peoples, the, you know, but the triune God is at work here, all the divine attributes are at play, I mean, this, is, this is both God and man. I, there, there are the physics, um, chemistry, you know, as Jesus is suffering a, a suffocating death on the cross. You're pointing out the narrative and the role that narrative plays in help, uh, helping us think about this properly, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely correct. Um, I'm, I'm tr- what I was emphasizing just a moment ago is the role of the Trinity within this narrative. So that's just another angle that gives us a fuller picture. So, so yeah, just to be clear, I wasn't trying to say in any way that what you were doing was a bad direction. It's just this takes a lot of tools. Mm-hmm. If you if you want like if you want to be a really good coach. And as you think about like an NFL coach, you, you watch some football, right? So yep. Houston, Houston's your team, right? Yep. Um, you know, th- those head coaches, they're not just thinking plays. They're managing a whole business. I mean, they're They're thinking at so many different levels at once in order to be a good coach. That's what we have to do as Christians in order to think well about this event because there's an awful lot going on here. And that's what, that's what I'm trying to unpack a little
2: bit. Okay. Well, we've dealt a little bit with the honor and shame substitution. We've dealt a little bit with the um, penal substitution. I think the other key category that we can probe a little bit when the time that we have left is this whole cosmic dimension of what's going on. That certainly has been a part of the theological discussion about what atonement is about. You bring in the name uh, Anselm and people like that, and you're into this com- part of the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, uh, do we talk about ransom in relationship to atonement or not?
1: <clears throat> okay. There's a fantastic passage in Scripture that talks about God reconciling all things to Himself through the Son in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does it mean for God to reconcile all things to Himself in heaven? Now, so, so, so when, when the Bible wants to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, it wants to talk about the problem of our sin. And that, that, that's there, front and center. But then it has all these other little things that it wants to talk about, too. You have the angels kind of longing to know what's going on. And the idea that God is going to reconcile the heavenly things to himself. Well, what are the heavenly things? Um, I take it uh, that, that those are the angels. Um, so so, and, But then Romans also talks about the earth groaning. Like so, so it's not just our sin. The earth is groaning and waiting to be restored. And then you have all of the, the whole animal kingdom, which was at peace with us in Genesis, is at peace with us at the end in Revelation. And in the meantime, we have the prophets looking forward to that time. But right now, it's a time of rebellion and of strife with, 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 with animals. What, what, so the the Bible invites us to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just in terms of our sin, but in terms of God bringing all of creation back to its proper order and place. Part of that is, is defeating the the rebellious angels, Satan and the demons, and putting them in their proper place. But, but, but another part of that is is restoring the animal kingdom, is, is bringing the earth back to a place where it's no longer groaning with the pain of childbirth. Um, and even in C.S. Lewis, in his space trilogy, in Out of the Silent Planet, um, and That Hideous Strength, and Paralandra, <clears throat> he has a vision where the death and resurrection of Jesus restores the earth to the music of the spheres, which was this ancient idea that the, that the Greeks and the Romans had, that the planets made a song. So he, the death and resurrection of Jesus restores the earth to that song within the heavens. So even the heavens themselves have a fuller experience or are, 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 are as they were meant to be because of Jesus' work. So it's, it's, the more you start poking around the scripture with an eye for this, the more you see it's thinking about us, but it's thinking about more than that. It's thinking about all of creation.
2: Okay, so um, I'm back to the ransom question then, so is there uh, and I think this is, as you know, in the history of, of the discussion of this, there's a huge discussion about if we're going to use the image of ransom, um, who 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 gets the payment, or and is that even the way to think about this?
1: Oh yeah, 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 that's a great question. Um, okay, so so there's, yes, there's absolutely a ransom, and Satan features prominently not just in some theories of the atonement. Um, In reading contemporary books, you might think, oh, that's a theory, some people thought that. The hard thing is to find a theologian who didn't believe that um, prior to 1800, even then afterwards, most of them still affirm it. So what's, what's going on there? I think the best way to think about the role of Satan is not as a separate theory. Oh, that's the ransom theory. Satan is one of the characters that's involved in every theory of the atonement, uh, if we develop it properly. Who receives the payment? Um, I'm inclined to side with Anselm and say Satan is not being paid anything. But God is a God who treats his creatures according to the rules that he sets up. When, when, when he says, you are the ruler of this land, he will treat you as the ruler of this land. And you will be judged or blessed as you fulfill that role, but he will treat you as the ruler. And if you are, you play the role of a corrupt ruler, he will still treat you that way. So he's treating Satan as the corrupt ruler of our land, but he still gives him the, the dignity of treating him the way God the, with the role that God gave him. So... And so God plays by his own rules. In doing that, he's not paying Satan, giving him anything that he owes, like, in in an exchange. So Satan comes out with, like with money or some benefit or something like that, but he's playing according to his own rules and that means that he's giving Satan what Satan deserves. And so in the process, Satan gets what he asks for, you know, he gets the death of Jesus, he gets a lot of suffering throughout creation, but in the process, God's undermining his power. So I think ransom theory is primarily a matter of God undermining the power of Satan while playing by his own rules and not, not cheating, not just destroying Satan, um, in a way that'll restore Christ as the head of creation, where where Satan was trying to take that from us.
2: Okay. Now I think that takes us through that category. They've got one category time for one more category. Okay, great. Let's talk about um, Christ as the example which I think is um, uh, a very underdeveloped idea in relationship to atonement. So um, so help us with that one.
1: Okay, so the, the standard uh, storyline goes that exemplarism, Christ as example, was invented by Peter Abelard, and that his idea was Christ is such a powerful, inspiring example that it changes us, and that's how the, the death and resurrection is saving. Well, that all comes from about a five-page selection from his commentary on Romans, which has now finally been translated in 2011. If you read the whole commentary, Peter Abelard is not an exemplarist.
0: Mm.
1: What that, so that view became popular in during the Enlightenment and kind of 1800s. It's, so it's not a standalone theory of the atonement like you would read in a lot of textbooks.
2: It's a, It's a way of neutering uh, and neutralizing other aspects of the theology which the Enlightenment tended to do.
1: And, it, and it, so it's just an enlightenment thing.
2: Yeah. But that's
1: if it's meant to do everything by itself. So it, that, that's a little bit like, you know, your, your mom cooking only pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving. Yeah, pumpkin pie is fabulous. If that's all you're cooking, I'm sure you're going to get sick soon. Um, maybe not as fast as if you only ate at McDonald's, but that's another <laughs> story. Um, so if all you're trying to do is cook with that pie, you, you're in trouble. But there's a huge line of thought throughout Scripture. God wants to be known. God wants to be known and worshipped accordingly. But we don't have the tools for knowing Him given our fallen condition. Like, even though even though creation might be testifying and witnessing, we are not the kinds of creatures who can absorb and respond to that properly. So part of what God is doing is coming, and as the God who wants to be known, He's making Himself known through His own
2: activity, and He's showing who He is by what He does.
1: He is showing who He is by exactly by, by what by what He does, and He's so he's sweeping us up into the story of His life in a way that makes Himself known, so that we and all creation can respond. So this is just a massive self-revelation of God that puts aside every other false god, false witness, false testimony so that creation can respond and worship.
2: And the And the example is, if I can use the analogy, just as Jesus washed the feet of the disciples in John 13 as he was preparing to tell them about his death, Uh his death is the consummate illustration of the service that reveals the character and care of God.
1: And then the resurrection pulls into to pull that storyline right to its completion. The resurrection then says, "And this is the joyful existence of the life that lives that way, affirmed in the life of God,
2: and re- and and uh, exalted and honored after the suffering to show this is something that God approves of."
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so, if, if you go that route, then that sort of exemplarism, sort of just the the revelation of God, which triumphs over all idolatry that that i can affirm
2: you know, no, no, no problem. We have to affirm that. Yes. So, so you, our time is up. Amazingly, um, and uh, and so we've gone through penal substitution. We've gone through honor and shame substitution, if I can say it that way. We've gone through cosmic redemption and the ransom theory, and we've gone through Jesus as the example. Uh, just uh, a variety of ways to think about the atonement beyond the simple penal substitution that everybody tends to think of. Adam, I thank you for helping helping us uh, uh, get unperplexed as we've looked at the atonement
1: oh my pleasure thanks yeah. for having
2: me we're glad to have it and we're glad that you could be a part uh, of our discussion here on the table where we discuss issues of God and culture and we look forward to seeing you again soon
1: thanks for listening to the table podcast for more podcasts like this one visit dts.edu/ the table. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth,
0: love well.